Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her multi-layered and thoroughly researched new book, The Mosques of Colonial South Asia, A Social and Legal History of Muslim Worship, Sana Harun examines the interaction and intersection of varied legal regimes, devotional practices, and conceptions of sacred space invested in the institution and structure of the mosque in South Asia. This book combines dense yet markedly accessible archival research with the close reading of a range of texts and legal political strivings of a range of previously unexplored actors, including prayer leaders, scholars, mosque managers, lawyers, colonial magistrates, and local notables. Through this exercise, Harun documents in vivid detail the aspirations and ambiguities that drove a variety of claims over the meaning and place of the mosque in South Asian Islam and Muslim identity. During the colonial moment, fraught with vigorous intra-Muslim and inter-religious contestations over this question. Lucidly composed and theoretically invasive, This book is sure to spark important conversations among scholars from a range of academic fields and disciplines. Here now is my conversation with Professor Sana Harun. Hello, Sana. How are you? Uh, Fine. Thank you, Shirali. Thank you so much, Sana, for making out the time to be on the New Books Network and on New Books in Islamic Studies. Um, And thank you for, as I was saying before I pressed record here, for writing this really incredibly rich and important uh, new book uh, which uh, is really based on this incredibly layered research and uh, is making a very important um, intervention and argument that I'm looking forward to talking to you about. Uh, but as uh, is the tradition on the New Books Network, uh, Sana, my first question to you is biographical. Uh, could you share a bit with our listeners about how you became a scholar, a historian, uh, interested in South Asian Islam and, and society? Certainly. Um, and uh, thank you for um, for asking that question. I think um, it's uh, something that I sometimes have the opportunity to discuss with my students, and I think my own answers often surprise me. Um, I started uh, many years ago um, at the School of Oriental and African Studies uh, doing a PhD and uh, I was interested in Afghanistan. And uh, I think it it was, uh, you know, when we find ourselves at this juncture, tragically again today, but at that time, it was the very early days. um, It was was, um, the very early days of the the Taliban, and, and then the war on terror began. And I, as I explored that, those questions, and um, also matters around Islam and politics and uh, the motivations of, uh, of Muslims at times in the past for organizing around 
their faith. Um, I have encountered um, sort of all sorts of uh, intellectual and methodological problems, and I began to focus more and more closely on spaces of organization uh, and started to investigate how Muslims and others actually engaged in those spaces. And so my very early work uh, came to center on the study of the Northwest Frontier tribal areas of what is modern-day Pakistan. And um, I went on to... um, to, to engage with this theme in a variety of different ways. And that has been the approach that I've taken to um, my work on Islam in South Asia. Uh, I've uh, worked on uh, the relationship of Muslims to hankas and to um, broader areas and spaces of administration. And that was um, sort of how I've worked my way through the study of uh, South Asia and South Asian Islam. Terrific. Um, so uh, I wanted to begin by asking you a sort of a broad question about the larger theme um, then of this of this book. The book, of course, focuses on mosques in colonial South Asia, uh, and it is a legal and social history. Um, you know, the one thing that I found really fascinating about this book throughout is the way in which it sort of engages. Uh, one, what one might call different le- regimes of law um, and legal institutions and sort of this interaction between uh, sort of Mughal uh, sort of uh, systems of um, organization and legal imaginaries with the colonial uh, sort of uh, uh, conceptions of law and religion uh, and how the mosque as a site um, uh, figures into this kind of uh, uh, an encounter. Uh, but I was wondering if you could share briefly with our with our listeners what aspect of the mosque is punctuated in this book and what kind of a social and legal history do you conduct and uh, how do you uh, sort of see the kind of intervention that you're making through the mosque as part of a larger social and legal history of this particular moment, uh, the 19th and early 20th century? Yes, thank you for that. So uh, so the one caveat that uh, I was trying to work into the title, but it, that tends to be challenging, is that I don't write the legal history of uh, the mosque. I work from uh, this wonderful body of work on law, and it is law relating to Muslim endowments, uh, and also actually to endowments in general in colonial India. So the mosque's legal status uh really derived from the laws of trust, which were created in India to classify um, religious buildings and other buildings and lands of public and charitable benefit as land on which tax uh, or revenue would not be assessed. And it was that law is what framed the entire colonial conceptualization and approach to the mosque. Uh, And it was, in some ways, um, an easy sort of correspondence to an existing body of Islamic law, because in fact, in the Islamic legal tradition and in the prevailing uh, sort of historic uh, management of mosques in South Asia, there were endowers, there were patrons of mosques, there were custodians of mosques, and those uh, offices corresponded very easily to the legal 
categories of endower or grantor of the trust, the manager or the custodian of the trust, and the public, uh, and then imagine the public that corresponded to a beneficiary of the trust. But this conceptualization of the mosque, while it worked legally, it really was a modification of the culture around religious worship and the culture around governance of mosques in the late pre-colonial, in the very early colonial period. During that time, by the even through the um, um, the dissolution of the period of the dissolution of the Mughal state and the rise of uh, other polities and the coming of British control through North India, there was a, um, a general understanding among state administrators and a general public that it was the state that was responsible for the mosque, that the state made provisions for and created resources for and mediated disputes related to mosques and other places of worship. That understanding was diminished uh, through the 19th century. And in 1863, that commitment of the colonial state to the mosque was dissolved altogether. And these laws of trust that imagined the mosque to be simply an endowment by a person, um, a notable figure, uh, in the benefit of Muslims, that was the idea that came to prevail. Oh, sorry, were you completing something? Uh, no, I think that's... Okay, terrific. So now the the, the way the book is structured is a really, uh, I think, a very effective uh, structure that each chapter considers a particular case study and a particular set of questions and actors, really fascinating set of actors. And then uh, there is this extensive, um, uh, really, uh, um, textual work and historical sort of... Uh, inquiry that you conduct. Uh, so I will basically ask you a question each about these case studies. We'll begin, uh, I guess, chronologically with the first chapter, which is centered on Tajpur and this really interesting debate that that, that happens there about um, the practices of these two major um, uh, normative orientations in colonial South Asia, the Ali Hadith and the Hanafi sort of legal school. Um, and the thing that I found really fascinating about this chapter again was the way in which there is a colonial conception of secularism at work, and but the very distinction between what is uh, public law and what is private is often quite blurred and ambiguous. Uh, so I'll have you describe to our listeners a bit uh, what was the issue, what was the thorny problem at hand with this mosque in Tajpur, and how was a resolution reached, and what kinds of conclusions do you draw from the way this all played out? So the Tajpur Mosque story, which is the, as you mentioned, the opening story in this book, is the story of a dispute around a mosque that began in around the 1880s. This was after the colonial state had disavowed any sort of responsibility for patronage of mosques or management of their resources, and before the 
um, but before the courts had really worked out, well, what do we do if there's a dispute around what happens in mosques? And there were really plenty of disputes that took place among India's varied and often very dense urban and um, settled populations. So the dispute that arose in Tajpur arose around a point of religious interpretation and was fueled by an extremely popular uh, religious movement, which was the movement of the Ehle Hadith. The Ehle Hadith were um, made up of the movement or the participants in the Ehle Hadith movement were inspired by the technologies of print. They were readers. They were um, often in many cases, newly wealthy, and they had very refined sensibilities and concerns about their own interpersonal conduct and uh, believed that worship and the understanding of worship should be very personal and should be deeply felt. And they prayed in mosques alongside Muslims who weren't Ahli Hadith. And in the town of Tajpur, a particular community of the Ahli Hadith prayed alongside people who classed themselves as Hanafis. Now, there's no particular brand of worship in Hanafi Islam. The term Hanafi really refers to a, a body of law uh, and a very old body of law uh, that pertains to many things. And so for worshippers to consider themselves Hanafi in that particular case was for them to say that they associated with the religious traditions that had prevailed under the Mughal state as a Hanafi state. And the conflict that arose between the Ahlidis and the Hanafis was over a point of articulation of the Amin during prayer in the mosque. The Ahlidis, inspired by the writings of somebody called Shah Ismail, had argued that the Amin should be vocalized. And this belief was um, derived from fairly interesting thinking about the nature of the mystical experience, the appreciation of divinity and the sense of divinity that a worshipper had as they prayed. And they believed that reciting the Amin loudly would reinforce that understanding of and relationship with the divine. Hanafis, on the other hand, and the ones in this particular mosque who call themselves Hanafi as opposed to Ahle Hadith, had been used to a silent Amin, not vocalizing the Amin in their prayers. And they recalled that silent practice from their own lifetimes, from their own recent past. And they've found the loud and vocal Amin of the Ahl Hadith to be disruptive. So they objected to this ritual practice in the mosque. The Ahl Hadith were incredibly well organized. They were very well financed and they were very litigious. And they actively saw the mosque as a space that was critical and central to social organization at the community level, at the local level. And they were not willing to back down from their expectation that they should be able to conduct the prayer and practice this ritual in the manner that they had argued within their own treatises was appropriate. 
And so they took the case to court when the Hanafis of the town objected to their uh, vocal amin. The courts were very unsure how to deal with this. The um, the existing jurisprudential traditions at that time did not have any uh, uh, any sort of um, reasoning for dealing with values, social values that emerged from devotional practice. And so the courts and the judges in, in a variety of different courts sort of made the best that they could of this issue. But as the case kept getting appealed to higher and higher courts, and first one judge ruled in favor of the Hanafis, and then another judge ruled in favor of the Ahli Hadith. And eventually this case made its way up to the highest court of colonial appeals, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. And the decision that was arrived at, which became precedent setting and became a guiding decision for mosques across South Asia and throughout the uh, with, throughout this jurisdiction of the colonial courts, the decision that uh, was that, uh, and it actually it went back to an, one of the earlier decisions that had come from one of the courts in the case. It said that the mosque is not a public space like a road is. It's not a space where Muslims can generally, through consensus, express a preference for a particular value or another. They said, well, the mosque really being a space that is endowed by a grantor should be governed and managed by the expectations of that grantor and his appointed custodians. And so they went back to the actual founding of the mosque itself, that particular individual mosque. And they said, well, if the custodian or his appointed um, managers, and this was now many generations removed from the actual endowment, moment of endowment of the mosque. Uh, so they they looked at the custodian who was managing the mosque at that time, and they said, well, if this custodian approves of the um, prayer leaders, uh, if, if the, this custodian appoints the prayer leader, then the prayer leader is within his rights to set the ritual preference in the mosque or to um, to uh, express whatever ritual preference he prefers. And so in that decision and in that judgment, the space of the mosque, which up until that moment, in the eyes of the Hanafi residents of that town, had been a place which was where, within which worship was a, an expression of prevailing general Muslim sentiment, the judgment changed it from being a space of worship uh, according to general and prevailing sentiment and changed it to being a space of worship which was oriented by the prayer leader as appointed by the custodians. And so the mosque went from being uh, a place which was shaped by a general Muslim sentiment and became a space that was shaped by the objectives and the leadership of its current management uh, within, of course, um, normative bounds that would still be prayer in a Muslim form. The colonial conception of secularism, as you know, you put it so well, Shirali, had 
produced this decision and had produced this turn in the history of mosques and Muslim worship by simply refusing to become involved in the debate and the conversation. The secular colonial courts could not determine what was Muslim sentiment, what was a normative value, and what was an, a religiously acceptable value. And so by simply retreating from the debate and retreating from the conversation about what devotionalism really was in India, the colonial courts left the mosque as a space which now could be shaped by the actual management of the mosque itself. The next uh, chapter moves to a very different uh, setting, another very exciting chapter, uh, which moves uh, to Rangoon in the early 20th century, 1916, uh, to be more specific. And the key themes of that chapter have to do with uh, custodial control. Um, and in this chapter, really, one gets a great sense of these intra-Muslim tussles that happen around who controls the mosque, what will be uh, taught at the mosques in terms of educational uh, sort of activities. Um, uh, Sana, it would be useful for our listeners who may not be familiar if you could briefly sort of uh, give the setting of uh, Rangoon and, and the kind of issue of uh, hereditary control of the mosque over more democratic ideals that were, that were pushed by uh, certain segments. If you could uh, sort of briefly set the stage for us about this context and who are the main actors uh, who are involved. And then what about custodial control? Uh, the argument that you make in this chapter, what about custodial control becomes central uh, to the key theme of this chapter? Certainly. Um, so Rangoon, as you said, is a very different setting than um, the northeastern town of uh, Tajpur. Uh, Rangoon was began to be shaped shortly after the British takeover in, and from the, by about eighteen the eighteen fifties and the eighteen sixties, it was becoming it was developing as a new port city of the British colonial state in India. Muslims and a variety of other people moved to Rangoon from across South Asia, and some even as far as Afghanistan. And there were a large number of Chinese migrants to the city as well in the same region. And so Rangoon became an incredibly diverse city. Uh, and that diversity was not just a general diversity of religions and ethnicities and languages, but even diversity within religious groups. So the Muslims of Rangoon were spoke a number of different languages. There were Punjabi Muslims, um, South Indian uh, Tamil-speaking Muslims, uh, Gujarati-speaking Muslims, and even within the Gujarati community, there were a number of divisions between them. And so Islamic practice and Muslims in uh, in Rangoon were. Uh, were uh, used to all sorts of different customs and traditions. They had whole sorts of different practices among them. This was the setting for um, the endowment of a mosque by a uh, Gujarati Muslim trader from uh, Randir in the western Indian trading town of Surat, who moved to Rangoon in around about 1849 or 1850. And in 1852, built a small wooden building on his own land, on a corner plot, and endowed it and 
represented it as being a mosque for Muslim worship. And over time, a number of different Muslims began to visit this mosque and worship in there regularly. This mosque was, uh, over time, it grew. There was more land and more buildings added to it. It was rebuilt several times uh, in grander and grander forms, eventually uh, being with the floors inlaid in marble and beautiful teak columns in the prayer hall. And it, um, by the end of the 1800s, it was the size of almost an entire city block in Rangoon. And this city block, if you imagine Rangoon in that time, was an expansive, beautiful space where most homes in that neighborhood were maybe one-eighth the size and uh, a very small distance in width along those same city blocks. So from the very crowded uh, and dense uh, neighborhoods within which they lived, all sorts of Muslims would come and pray in this Juma Mosque in Rangoon, the Friday Mosque in Rangoon, as it came to be known. There was not the only mosque in Rangoon. There were a variety of other mosques endowed in different streets and built, um, some very grand and some quite uh, modest. And uh, Muslims were always free to worship in any of those mosques at all, uh, uh, conditional on their relationship to their sect. So Sunnis worshipped in Sunni mosques and Shias worshipped in Shia mosques. But beyond that, there was no real restriction on who could worship in any mosque. The Juma Mosque, of course, was a very special space, and the colonial state had recognized it as being special uh, as the city itself grew. And in those very early days of colonial control in Rangoon, the administration in the city had actually given a plot of land to the mosque in an effort to emulate the kind of benefaction, elite benefaction, that had characterized religious endowment across much of North India in the pre-colonial period. But then even the colonial state sort of disengaged from that involvement in the affairs of the mosque. Um, But that was sort of to say that it was an important space and everybody recognized it as being as such. But the mosque had, had been managed by and its custodianship lay in the hands of those custodians who were nominated and named by that original benefactor of the mosque. The original benefactor's name was Mullah Hashim, and he named members of his own uh, very close uh, ethnic community as being the successors to his management of the mosque. And so um, by the late 1800s, anybody could visit the mosque but very few people had a right to manage and to run it. So this was um, so this was a setting for a tussle that would emerge over the custodianship of the mosque, and the tussle was rooted in the fact that members of the congregation participating in and worshiping in and having a great respect for the sanctity of this building found that they had no influence over the programming that happened within it. Some of them celebrated the Milad, the celebration of the birth of the Prophet. Others 
felt that they should be able to use the building of the mosque when they had personal private celebrations, such as weddings or birth, the akika ceremonies. Uh, and they expressed these expectations to the mosque custodians, the mosque custodians whose own preferences for activities in the mosque did not include milads and akika ceremonies, did not allow those members of the congregation to hold those other events in the mosque. That was the reason for the tussle to emerge over custodial control. And so a certain group within the congregation put forward the expectation and submitted a petition to the court that they should in fact be allowed to participate in custodianship and management of the mosque. But the court saw that as being a modification of the expressed will of the benefactor of the mosque. The next uh, chapter moves back to uh, northern India, the United Provinces, and to Aurangabad and Kanpur. Um, a really, really fascinating chapter again. And here, uh, uh, the thing that was really interesting and fascinating, and a category that I would like you to um, briefly explain uh, to our listeners, um, is this whole idea of um, the mosque perimeter uh, and how you, you talk about ways in which a mosque defense movement really turns into what you call a perimeter defense movement. And, and really this chapter talks about the, the boundaries between the mosque as a site of, um, I guess, devotion and worship and uh, the, the, the spaces of uh, uh, urban, um, uh, uh, urban, what's the difference between urban space and the space of the mosque as a site of devotion and worship, and you talk about ways in which that that boundary can oftentimes be very ambiguous, and it's a very consequential uh, boundary that implicates the law in really fascinating and interesting ways. So again, uh, Sana, could you explain to us why the perimeter of a, a particular mosque became so crucial, and uh, how did the the the, the colonial uh, sort of governmental apparatuses, especially the magistrates' uh, office, become implicated in this in this debate, and how did it resolve itself? Yes. Um, so this is uh, uh, this this chapter sort of gets us to some of the complexities about what we're talking about when we're talking about the mosque. The question of where does it begin and where does it end, and who is in charge of that junction between the interests of devotees and devotional participants and the interests of a public in the areas adjacent to the mosque. So the mosque perimeter uh, is, my conceptualization of the mosque perimeter does stem from this wonderful body of work that we already have on mosque defense movements in South Asia. We know that Muslims, we've known for a long time that Muslims were galvanized by and organized around uh, movements defending mosques from implied or overt threats from a more general public, whether it's the colonial state or whether it's other people of other religions uh, who might uh, express antipathy for something to do with the mosque. And so what happened in Kanpur was that a, um, these Muslims of the town uh, of Kanpur had had um, received uh, the plans of the uh, municipal 
body of that town that they would be building a um a road through what was an old small south asian neighborhood a very typical north indian neighborhood of the machli bazaar the fish market and that road would modify very in a very minor way would modify the border of the mosque building with this uh, in order to create a street um that um a, a very straight street along which traffic could travel at a reasonable speed and connect to another main road ahead the modification of that boundary of the mosque uh was seen as being egregious and the egregiousness of the act was expressed by a variety of people there were the local muslims of that neighborhood but there was also um the barelvi members of the uh, barelvi jamaat and ahmed shah uh, um um ahmed barelvi particular who wrote about this uh boundary as being sacrosanct and he said you cannot simply take away a little piece of mosque land and repurpose it land that belongs to a mosque is a mosque you can't take away that land and then suddenly call it something else and give us another piece of land in place of it um uh the mosque is a place of sanctity and you must respect its boundaries and he also talked about the problem of the of traffic along that boundary and said well you know if this boundary is modified the at, along with the road we'll actually have an overhang above the door and above the road the mosque will have an overhang and you will have people and unclean things and all sorts of things passing under the roof of a mosque so he raised this as being a point of uh, a legal problem and said that this debate really could not be resolved by a municipal board that they cannot simply uh, rule on the modification of the perimeter of the mosque and this was a serious legal issue in the case of the kanpur mosque that matter was resolved simply by uh by um an ex, uh, by the overt expression of power by the colonial state so the municipality went ahead and and broke down the corner of the mosque and built the road and simply tried to pacify the muslims after that event and at first was very violent towards them and then eventually was a little bit conciliatory but the modification of that boundary went ahead in that particular case the issue arose again in a related in a case that i believe is related in a town called orangabad a few years later in 1916 where again the perimeter of the mosque came under scrutiny and in this case it came under scrutiny because the sunni muslim worshippers inside the mosque objected to the passage of shia muslim processions on the road outside the mosque during the month of muharram the sunnis who prayed in that congregational space said that the noise of lamentations and mourning and the stops that the procession made along that road were disruptive to worship within uh the 
argued that this space was that the space of the mosque again was sacrosanct and, and worship should not be disrupted in that manner and so they went to the and so they actually the sunnis within the mosque actually prevented the shias one year in 1916 from stopping outside the mosque now in this case the local government the magistrate's office intervened in the dispute and reinforced the expectations of the sunnis inside the mosque and prevented the shia processioners from stopping and from engaging in the muharram uh, morning uh, and disrupting the sunni prayer inside and it was the shias who took the case to the courts and they brought up the very point that had been raised earlier in the kanpur dispute the point that a matter like this devotionalism should not be subject to the administrative control of these petty officers of the colonial state in this case the magistrate and again it was a magistrate's office that had authorized the uh, demolition of the corner of the mosque in kanpur just a few years earlier they argued that devotionalism was not a matter for the magistrate and they expressed an expectation the shias expressed an expectation that they should be allowed to engage in devotionalism on the street now you'll be seeing you will you'll see that the problem lies in the fact that each of these groups involved in these in this particular dispute have different expectations for what happens at the perimeter of the mosque the shias said well we should be able to worship and and have our processions and lamentations that go past public spaces and places of worship including mosques in the case of um in the sunnis in aurangabad denied that and then there were hindus in other parts of north india who had their own objections to and their own concerns with the interrelationship between the mosque the interior of the mosque and the mosque perimeter and devotionalism on the street so for the colonial state the problem lay in the fact that nobody wanted the same thing everybody had different expectations for what would happen in that liminal junction between the space of worship within the mosque and what happened on the street outside and so when the shia petition came to the courts asking that devotionalism be permitted on the street the colonial state sort of stepped back and looked at its processes the court stepped back and looked at the processes and the process and the the match the manner of managing these issues was this that there was no consistent solution to any uh, to there was no consistent social expectation across india about what would happen in mosques that every city every town every population was different and the colonial state wanted at all costs to manage problems make them go away and to concede to those well, first of all to make sure that their own economic and and um and economic and transit related priorities were fulfilled on streets but also that um that if there was a larger group if there was a more powerful group in a town that their interests really should be uh, managed and so 
The magistrate was the person on the ground who could manage all of these concerns. He could decide uh, what was the most consequential matter in a particular moment, in a particular time. And so in that case, which again went as far as the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, the magistrate uh, was once again authorized as being the person who must use his discretion to manage each instance, each case, each moment of conflict and evaluate it on its own terms and make a decision. And so in that moment, the perimeter of the mosque crystallizes as a space of of concern and a space of the mosque where uh, where a variety of uh, of expectations crystallize and that the this magistrate as an officer of the state is the person who is authorized to make decisions for that space and in doing that the colonial courts elevate the magistrate as being an authority within South Asian Islam. Because from that moment onwards, every um, custodian of the mosque in Aurangabad would consult with the magistrate about the processions that would take place on the streets outside and would consult with the magistrate about um, uh, any event that might be having inside. And the same was true of the of mosques around all of North India, where um, they where now the intersection between the street and the mosque was subject to the discretionary control of the magistrate and authorized as being as such. Now, for the next chapter, we move to uh, Punjab to Lahore, um, and in the um, year nineteen forty, and this chapter really brings home a very interesting theme, uh, which we see, I guess, in this chapter and the next one, which is competing. Uh, claims to the space of, um, uh, you know, a sacred space uh, uh, by different religious communities. And you show ways in which uh, that doesn't have to translate into inter-religious competition, but does involve some very interesting claims to that space and uh, by navigating the legal and administrative landscape uh, and structures of uh, the colonial state in some very fascinating ways. So, and uh, in this case, the uh, the main site at hand is the Shahid Ganj um, Mosque uh, slash Gurdwara, etc. Uh, uh, tell us a bit, Sana, about what were the two sort of uh, uh, how were Sikh and Muslim communities both invested in the site, and how did uh, the Muslim claimants to the site go about uh, making claims um, on the site uh, by making appeals to questions of revenue uh, control um, and uh, other legal mechanisms that they employed in trying to make a claim over this over the site. Yeah. Um, so this really does sort of get us out of just intra-Muslim disputes and into this space of inter-religious dispute, which um, most students of South Asian religions would be familiar with. Um, because they, there were so many of them across India through the colonial period and to this day. So the question is, how does a mosque come to be claimed by two different religious groups? Well, in the case of this site, the Shahid Ganj Mosque, the mosque had been endowed in the late Mughal period in the 1700s by a nobleman associated with the Mughal courts. and he had. 
um, and the, the mosque had been managed for about a hundred years until the rise of the Sikh state in the Punjab. And with the rise of the Sikh state in the Punjab, the city of Lahore, where this mosque was located, became a, a Sikh-controlled city. And was and its built environment, its buildings, its streets, its endowments uh, were, were deeply influenced by the impulses and the imperatives of the Sikh Darbar, which was just barely a mile from this particular mosque, the mosque of, um, uh, of Shahid Ganj, as it came to be called. During the Sikh period, for a variety of incredibly interesting reasons, some Sikh custodians came into control of this site, and the site began to be used as a place of Sikh religious significance. How that happened is a little bit unclear, but it seems as though with an intermingling of religious traditions and religious teaching, um, the Muslim custodians had actually taken on Sikh students and adherents at the site, and that's how the site had become a place of religious significance to Sikhs. Whatever the reason, by 1849, when the British took over, the site was no longer in use as a mosque. It hadn't been for at least 10 or 15 years, and it was uh, being used as a Sikh place of worship. And so when the British colonial state came to Lahore and took it over, in 1849, they classified this site as being a Sikh religious site, as being a Gurdwara. Almost immediately, and this is a period during which revenue land surveys are happening across the city, and so all people in Lahore were very aware of the implications of the characterization of land, uh, whether it was proprietary or religious use land, they knew that these characterizations would prevail. And very early on, Muslim petitioners put in a request to the colonial administrators, the new colonial administrators of Lahore, to return the site to Muslim use. Um, but the ad colonial administrators at the time, although a couple of them were quite friendly to Muslim interests, in fact, one of the very early officers who visited the site was himself a Muslim and, and had a lot of uh, empathy for the Muslim claim to this site, he said that under colonial land law, the prevailing practices, this land could not be classified as a mosque because there was simply no present use of it as a mosque. They had to document and uh, characterize land as they observed it. And so the characterization of the land as a Gurdwara rested on its use as a Gurdwara in that critical period of 1849 to 1851. The, um, the uh, Muslims pushed back, and the only possible loophole in this was the um, was the idea that they could create testimony and testimony of the usage of the building as a mosque, and so there were petitions put forward beginning in that year, eighteen forty nine. Also, old Mughal documents of endowment and documentation were put forward, and so 
uh, in many ways, the um, Muslims of the city and those associated with the mosque and its immediate neighborhood tried to provide legal justification for the return of this land to Muslim use. But again, the entire colonial legal regime, which was pointedly, directly focused on the um, on the survey and the uh, governance of land and territory in a manner that made it economically productive, that whole legal framework did not allow for the return or the uh, the um, the return of territory that was in use by somebody else. It was something called the law of adverse possession. It was a law that related specifically to productive land. It wasn't really meant to relate to religious buildings. But again, the colonial state had no mechanisms, no apparatus for dealing with religious claims. It could only interpret religious claims through the lens of land as a product, economically productive um, 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 as an as an economically productive resource, and so they simply could not receive and interpret those claims. The um, Muslim, there were periodic Muslim efforts to reassert rights in that very site, in the site of Shahid Ganj, uh, between eighteen forty nine and um, and nineteen thirty six, and uh, sorry, in nineteen twenty seven. And then in 1920, but they were all failed efforts. Then in 1927, the entire site came under scrutiny, not because the Muslims asked for it to come under scrutiny, but because the Sikh community itself, going through its own uh, reformation and its own um, reorganization and thinking about the management of its own religious buildings, that Sikh community turned its attention to the Sikh custodians of the site, who in 1927 were deemed to be corrupt and having mismanaged the Gurdwara as a Gurdwara. And so at that moment, the Muslims put in yet another claim to the site. The thing that's so uh, sorry, very curious and, and a little fascinating about that legal petition at that time was that it was uh, imagined and and uh, led by the poet Alama Iqbal. He was one of the signatories to the petition for and the claim to the site in 1927. And um, it, later on, this case went to the Privy Council, and he uh, was one of the signatories to the petition. And at that time, this was the last effort that was made to reclaim or to claim the site of Shahid Ganj for Muslims of Lahore. And uh, it was sort of a complicated legal argument. Um, but the legal argument was really this, that it was that a mosque would always remain a mosque, that a mosque was not land, that it couldn't be classed as land, and therefore laws that related to land management could not be applied to religious buildings. It's actually, if you think about it, a pretty reasonable argument. And it's one that many other religious groups across India would not have taken issue with. There were many religious groups across India who really did believe the same thing. 
that religious land is not the same as economically productive land and should not be subject to the same laws. Um, but once again, the colonial courts and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council did not have uh, the sorts of legal frameworks uh, that would allow them to admit this claim of land as something else, land as religious land, land as a mosque that has its own meaning and definition and value. And so they rejected the claim and once again reasserted that based on the prevailing land uh, the regime which under which the legal regime under which land was managed, that it had been managed very appropriately, and that the site remained a Sikh site and a place of Sikh worship, and it remains that to this day. The final chapter uh, is from a slightly later period, um, uh, 1947, uh, right at the cusp of the partition, and it uh, deals with the site of uh, Kora Jahanabad. And here again, we have. Um, uh, the same sort of theme of um, an interreligious dynamic where we have this really fascinating story of uh, a Hindu convert to Shia Islam um, whose family then uh, sort of uh, uh, takes over a, a mosque uh, but uh, sort of uh, uh, the, the, the Islamic um, um, uh, identity of it is, 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 is not continued and it becomes an interesting dispute on the whole question of waqf or endowments, and who gets to control the site. And this chapter really, uh, in very specific ways, shows uh, ways in which the whole question of waqf um, operates and how uh, the Muslims of this area, when they try to reclaim uh, this site as a mosque, as something which um, on which the waqf uh, uh, should be operative, how they make uh, claims about the waqf in this, in this uh, sort of landscape of colonial law. Um, so could you uh, tell us a bit about how uh, this chapter sort of uh, brings uh, uh, to the fore and reveals the very complex operations of Waqf and how did the Muslim associations uh, formulate a strategy uh, through which they were able to win the case that this, in fact, was a Muslim uh, mosque uh, um, that was part of a Waqf um, endowment? Yes. Uh it's uh, this is one of the most fascinating stories, also because I don't think that this site exists any longer, and it was one of these key wins of uh, this whole period of of uh, legal rethinking about the status of mosques under colonial law. So the site was an endowment that had been created again in the late Mughal period, actually under the uh, 18th century Avad state, by a courtier of the Avad state who had been a Hindu but had converted to Shia Islam. As a, an elite and a nobleman of the Avad state, he built a mosque and an imambara, uh, which is a building for Shia congregation during the month of Muharram ritual morning. And he built this mosque in Imambara on his own estate in the town of Kora Jahanabad, which is about 26 miles north of Kanpur. He uh, endowed it as a vakf, and it was, as far as anybody knows, an oral declaration. It was one that was simply accepted by those around him. And it was 
sustained that dedication of land to the building and to the rituals of Muslim worship was sustained and overseen by that Hindu courtier. His name was Heather Bakhsh. It was sustained by his own sons and grandsons who were in fact Hindu. And so through the early 1800s, the site continued, and actually through the late 1800s, the site continued to function as a place of Muslim worship. In the late 1800s, um, now two generations removed from Heather Bakhsh, the custodian, still a member of his own family, uh, attempted to re-register the land as not being a vakf, and uh, and it wasn't just the religious site itself that he was concerned with. He was concerned with two revenue-generating villages that were associated with this religious site and which had provided the funds for the management of the Imam Bara and the mosque for the last hundred or so years. And he wanted to sell and uh, re- sell those revenue-generating villages and reappropriate the religious site to their own personal purposes. And so in the early 1900s, he began to restrict Muslim access to this site. Now, this was a period of uh, legal activism by Muslims across India. It was contemporaneous with a lot of the thinking that was happening in Kanpur around the relationship between the mosque and the street and the relationship between the congregation and the mosque. It was happening in Rangoon. So this was not, to close off the mosque and for the Muslims to respond was not at all an, uh, out of the ordinary. And um, the Muslims of the town began to uh, began to document the uh, their lack of access to the mosque, and they connected with uh, Shia religious and legal thinkers from the area who were deeply invested in mobilizing Muslims to protect sites like this one, many of which had fallen out of use. Now, the mismanagement of sites was not uh, the mismanagement of religious sites was not a practice that was particular to a hindu custodian managing a muslim mosque if you recall in lahore it was the sikh custodian's mismanagement of the gurdwara that led to the legal review of that site it was the muslim custodian's management of the rangoon mosque that led to the Muslim congregation in Rangoon seeking legal review of the terms of management of the site. So there was a a very widespread consciousness and interest in a general devotional public, let's say a general worshipping public across India in re-examining their own personal relationships and their collective relationships with their places of worship. Now, once again, you see the problem arises in the way the colonial state interpreted the nature of religious sites. They treated them as private 
acts of endowment for a public benefit. And they would always go back to the endowers and the custodians of sites and accord them a great deal of latitude to manage sites as they saw appropriate. The mistake that these particular custodians made, or rather, let's say that the the way that this particular case, the one in Kura Jahanabad, came to manage to push its way up through the courts was because the Hindu custodians had done something that even in the eyes of the colonial courts was egregious, which was that they restricted Muslims from access to the mosque for worship at all. And that was something that the courts had very early on granted, that Muslims have a right to enter mosques for worship and custodians must make mosques accessible for worship. The fact that Muslims could not enter was what became the turning point in this particular case and allowed it to advance. The um, As the case progressed through the courts, a variety of people very intentionally kept forcing the re-examination of the authority of the custodian over the mosque. And so now you see they're pushing back against a legal principle that had been in place since the 1880s. And we're now getting into the 1920s as far as this Kora Jahanabad case is concerned. They wanted the courts to really re-examine this latitude that was given to uh, custodians to uh, manage mosques under the, this um, charge that in this particular case, in the case of Kora Jahanabad, uh, the custodians had really overstepped and uh, done something which was completely egregious. Um, the um, in there was other there were other things happening also as the case progressed. By the nineteen twenties, uh, there was legislation tabled in the newly constituted. Um, uh, provincial constituent, the provincial assemblies of uh, the United Provinces, legislation that required the um, that required um, custodians to report to and to account for the way that they were managing the re- the funds, the incomes of religious estates, and so as against the backdrop of all this legal thinking and legislative change, the this case over the Kura Jahanabad Mosque progressed through the through the courts. Its progression through the courts reveals this this beautiful landscape of religious practice where Shias of the town of Kura Jahanabad, many of them living in houses right around that estate, would visit the site for prayer and particularly for uh, ritual practices during the month of Muharram. They would make food and distribute it. They would um, they would pray and they would invite many of their Hindu neighbors to this site. And many of the Hindus who lived in the area also testified to the ongoing devotional practices that had taken place at this site through the end of the 1800s. And so um, the case and the testimonies that were uh, that were documented uh, through this time period reveals not just the complex problem of the colonial state using the laws of trust 
to interpret the function and the and social rights in the mosque, it also reveals the very textured and unusual nature of worship at this site. And equally, um, all of the cases that I study in this book reveal the the very textured and particular nature of worship at every single one of these sites, revealing a tremendous diversity and localized nature of religious practice. This particular case, the Kora Jahanabad case, was eventually decided in 1947, which of course we all know is, is such an unusual and powerful date for it to come to an end. And um, in July of 1947, the Privy Council ruled that yes, in fact, the custodians had mismanaged the site and they returned it to um, to a uh, Muslim custodial uh, control. And so they, so the and the mosque and the Imambara once again opened up to religious practice and to Muslim worship. But even more importantly. This case and the the outcome of the case recognized the role of Muslim legal and political activists in in uh, um, surveilling and uh, um, observing the uses of religious of, of mosques and imambaras, they recognized and admitted evidence submitted by those people. And that was really the turning point in the entire legal framing relating to mosques. By admitting the interests of legal activists in religious sites and by acknowledging their testimony, the colonial state uh, had uh, recognized a general Muslim interest in mosques once again. It's that same general Muslim interest in mosques which the Hanafis had professed back in 1883 and had said, well, these ritual practices are, um, are, are not the norm. They are not our accepted practices that Muslims in general in India believe that we should pray silently. Here in the 1947 judgment in Kora Jahanabad, once again, the Muslims expressed a general expectation for what should be happening in that mosque in Kora Jahanabad, a general expectation that uh, the accounts should be submitted, that the that Muslims should be able to worship in a particular way. And they expressed the general Muslim rights to provide testimony about those uses for mosques and for that site. And it was that admission of general Muslim rights in the Qura Jahanabad Mosque and generally in legal disputes that marked the final transformation of laws of mosques, laws governing mosques under the colonial state. It marked um, the return of some sort of control to a general Muslim public. Sana, as we close our conversation here, as a final question, uh, I want to ask you, if you were to sort of take a step back, we've really uh, uh, done some uh, wonderful uh, analysis of these really extensive uh, 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 chapters. Uh, you know, um, I just want to share with our listeners that uh, the, the, the 
the kind of multi-layered uh, analysis that has gone into each chapter is really, really quite remarkable. And it's a real pleasure to read. But for, as a final question, I want us to perhaps take a step back. Um, and how would you uh, describe, uh, Sana, the contribution of this book in terms of uh, sort of the new ways in which it is pushing us to think about uh, South Asian Islam, to think about questions of the mosque as uh, a space, but also an idea uh, and, a, and a site of normative investment. What are the sort of the broader conceptual theoretical uh, interventions uh, that you see this book making? There are two um, there are two big interventions that I make in this book. The first is that I um, highlight the colonial courts and the colonial legal systems authorization of new forms of authority over the mosque. These are incredibly diverse cases of Muslim worship that I describe here, and they are among even more, um, even broader uh, landscape of religious practice in colonial India over the hundred year hundred or so year period that I examine. So there's no easy way to talk about normativity in Islam. Uh, we've always struggled with this problem of describing, well, really, what is South Asian Islam? And so uh, I highlight the diversity of practice, but argue that these very diverse practices are increasingly subject to forms of authority, like the custodian of the mosque, like the prayer leader in the mosque, like the magistrate on the street, and eventually uh, the land department, the the uh, the revenue survey services, and the finally the uh, Muslim uh, legal and political activists who uh, claim the right to protect and to defend mosques, and so over the course of this time period, these different forms of authority are acknowledged by the courts and authorized by the courts. And uh, they stand and they constitute forms of authority that are powerful and shape everyday practices across India. And we have not really acknowledged these as being forms of authority in Islam before. That's the first intervention that I offer, is presenting these new authoritative figures within the mosque and arguing for our admission of their relevance to the everyday lives of Muslims. The second intervention is constituting, and this is related, is constituting the mosque as a space of influence and of control by these authorities and arguing that the mosque is not, in fact, a public space as we may have imagined in the past and which it sometimes appears to be. The activities and the uh, ideas that Muslims express in mosques are constrained by these figures whom I have pointed out to you, and they're constrained um, uh, in, in a variety of ways. Not every uh, custodian of every mosque constrains debate in that mosque. Um, in fact, some custodians of mosques give great latitude to their congregations, while others 
were very um, perhaps uh, restrictive about what congregations could and couldn't do. So it's not that any single pattern of Muslim practice emerges through this period of legal change and uh, these precedent-setting judgments. But consistently, we see specific new forms of authority being recognized and authorized by the courts. And those forms of authority have enormous influence over what Muslims do within their mosque. The bigger implications of this book really have yet to be examined in its work that I look forward to doing a little bit more on myself. And I hope that others would take up this story and these stories and explore what sort of influence then emerges um, in different parts of India and how that coalesces. The Mosques of Colonial South Asia, A Social and Legal History of Muslim Worship by Professor Sana Harun, uh, published by I.B. Torres, uh, publishing in uh, 2021. Uh, thank you so much, Sana, for uh, the generosity of your time, uh, for this extensive discussion uh, on this book, which I'm sure will spark some great conversations from scholars in really multiple fields. Uh, and thank you for producing this wonderful volume uh, for all of us to read and, and benefit and learn from. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been great. So this was my conversation with Professor Sana Haroon about her wonderful new book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.